A-B-A Resort. West Canyon High North. Hey everybody, today we have Dr. Katie Wisco with us to discuss her recent journal article published in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis titled Stimulus Presentation versus Stimulus Removal in the Good Behavior Game. Uh, and so a lot of uh, you behavior analysts are pretty familiar with the good behavior game, uh, but some of you might not be. And so this is just a great way that we can address group behavior, whether it's in a classroom or another large group. But before we get into that anymore, uh, and before we get into this study, I, I want to introduce our uh, guest on the show today. Uh, Dr. Katie Wisco is an assistant professor in psychology and child development at California State University, Stanislaus. Uh, and her current research uh, focuses on uh, evaluation of classroom management procedures and variables influencing operant response variability. Uh, she's been published in several journals, the uh, Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis, Behavior Analysis Research and Practice, Behavior Analysis and Practice, the R Analysis of Verbal Behavior, and behavioral intervention. She, that's that's just about all of them. Uh, and she uh, also served on the board of editors for the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis. So it's really an honor to have her here with us. Dr. Wisco, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to have you here. If there is anyone who has the education and experience to teach us how to manage a classroom, it's you. So I'm, uh, I'm excited to have you on. Uh, and just jumping right into things, uh, the good behavior game. Uh, what is that? Do you mind just like running, give it, giving us a little rundown on, on what this intervention typically looks like? Absolutely. So the good behavior game is a multi-component intervention. It involves presenting rules that specifies how the students should behave. And those are typically classroom rules. So things like sit crisscross if you're on the carpet area or raise your hand for permission to speak. It also involves an interdependent group contingency. So you divide the classroom into two or more teams and they compete against each other. There's a criterion to win. So the original version of the Good Behavior Game by Barish Saunders and Wolf uses a differential reinforcement of low rates. So think of it like golf, where teams want to avoid points and have to stay under that number of points in order to win. Yes. And the good behavior game is implemented during ongoing instructional time. So as the teacher is delivering a lesson, they will provide feedback following rule violations. So is, it, then, is it typically like a, an all-day thing that, that a teacher might do, like during the entire day of instruction or just like for an hour or something during a specific topic? That's a great question. So the good behavior game is typically implemented during the most problematic times of the day. And when you first start implementing the good behavior game, um, it's recommended to start for really brief periods of time. So even as short as 10 to 15 minutes. Oh, wow. And, so, and do you like, do teacher, and I, I know there's a lot of variations. And so like, that, that's one of the great things about it is you can really apply it to your classroom or your group of individuals you're working with. Uh, but is there, do you keep the same teams 
or do you mix it up day to day or how does that usually work? So you can do either. Uh, it's easiest to keep the teams the same. If you're, for example, grouping teams based on their position in the classrooms, if the desks are grouped in pods. Um, but if one team is always winning, then you're going to want to try to vary them across days. Oh, yeah. No, that's a that's seems like an important thing to consider there. You don't want one team to just always win. But yes. Um, <laughs> now, with this specific study, um, what were we looking at with the with the good behavior game? What was the research question? What was the focus of this study? So before I get into that too much, I want to first give a shout out to Erica Silva, who is the first author of this study. She was a graduate student of mine, and this study was actually her master's thesis. So that is um, awesome. She, yes, thank uh, shout you, out Erica. To Erica. Yes. <laughs> so what we were uh, what we were looking at in this study was a variation of the good behavior game, where upon a rule violation, you would remove a token or a point. And there were actually relatively few studies that evaluated this particular variation. And those that did compared it to a, an earned contingency, so reinforcement-only procedures. And most of the consumers tended to prefer the loss contingency over the earned contingency. Wow. So we thought, well, if this is a generally preferred intervention, uh, we really need some more research on this to see how it works. And when you're evaluating new or newer procedures, it's common to compare it to what you would consider a standard. So like in functional analyses, you might compare it to the AWADA um, FA methodology. Yes. And so in this study, we compared it to the Bear, Saunders, and Wolf um, good behavior game variation where you provide or add points following rule violations. All right. So you have two variations of the good behavior game in this study, and you're trying to compare them uh, to just compare the uh, effectiveness of both of those, right? Exactly. And, and so, then we also included a preference component at the end. That is, that's great. I'm, I'm excited to get into this a little bit more. So uh, the, well, I guess I should back up a little bit that you, there was also a baseline to this study as well. What did the baseline look like? So the baseline, we tell the teacher, we're just going to hang out and observe, uh, see how your classroom typically runs. So it's really classroom as is uh, with no additional intervention. So we sit in the back of the classroom or off to the side uh, to reduce our intrusiveness and record uh, instances of the target behaviors. And so that, that brings up a good question. For this study, what were the target behaviors like? Was it just any disruptive behavior would count as a, I don't know, as a the, the dependent variable in this study? Yeah, so we met with the teacher before we started and talked to her about what behaviors she uh, deemed were most concerning in her classroom. And we had a few observations before we started the actual baseline so that we could refine those operational definitions. And for this classroom, we define disruptions as talking without permission, making inappropriate noises, out-of-seat behaviors, and uh, manipulating objects that weren't related to the task. So students taking off their shoes or playing with their shoelaces, um, fiddling with things from their pockets, stuff like that. Great. So you, you identify the behavior. Um, 
then we uh, took some baselines. So you just, uh, they went, observed the classroom uh, as is uh, just how the, the teacher typically runs the class. Uh, and then the intervention starts. And you have the uh, two types of uh, good behavior games. And are you alternating them every other day? Is that kind of how you ran? Because I, I understand it's a multi-element design, right, that, that was conducted? Yes. Yeah, so we randomized the order. There were some instances where two days in a row we conducted, like, the removal condition, but never more than two. Awesome. Uh, and so the, and the two interventions, the one was uh, where they started out with no points or tokens, uh, and then you handed them out uh, to the group throughout the day. Now, were these like actual tokens that you were giving to each student or were they like, I don't know, put in a box in front of the classroom or something? So we conducted these sessions during whole group math instruction and we had token boards for each team of students. Okay. So in the stimulus presentation we called that the worried wart game and so the, <laughs> who the, came up with the, that <laughs> uh, my student came up with that <laughs> that's great um, and and the reason why we did this so maybe when we get to the results we can talk about the limitations of having you know these really salient stimuli but we wanted to make sure that they understood in this condition you're going to get tokens and those are bad you want to avoid those keep those away and so they were actually emojis of a worried face and in the stimulus removal condition we call that the happy camper game and so in that condition the team started with the token board with smiley face emojis on it wow okay yeah no that makes sense and so uh every every other day or so uh, it was random they were you know alternating playing the different games uh and then uh you uh, a reversal was conducted, right? So, like, you went back to see how things went with the uh, teacher-led classroom. Is that right? Yes, and we kept this really brief. Um, one, because going back to baseline is never fun for teachers when there's an intervention that works. And we were also getting to the end of the school year. So we had a one session reversal and we said, we're just going to hang out today and see how things go. Got it. Um, and disruptions increased again. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, when they had to, when you had to take a token away, uh, did we ever see that cause more disruptive behavior? No, actually. Um, usually what we would see is students might look at each other like, who was that? Because we provided feedback to the entire team. So the researcher would say something like, team two, sit on your bottom and remove the token. But uh, usually that was sufficient. And um, what we saw in baseline was that there tended to be a lot of persistence of bouts of disruption. And so when that immediate feedback was delivered upon the first instance, subsequent uh, disruptions tended to not occur. Oh, interesting. And it might have, you know, if you were having to take away tokens that were actually in the possession of someone, uh, that could cause a, a much bigger struggle or fight, but uh, having them up on the board that you can just take one away, um, yeah, that that probably helped it 
help the the students stay calm when when they didn't earn the token. Now, did uh, uh, you you went back to the intervention after the the one session of return to baseline, right? Yeah, in the final phase, we had the teacher implement the good behavior game, and so we conducted what's called a concurrent chains procedure which is a great way to evaluate consumer preference objectively. So we asked the teacher, okay, today we want you to play the game. Would you like to play the game where you add the tokens or do you want to play the game where you take them away? And she chose the variation where you remove the tokens on all three sessions. Wow. And uh, did you measure uh, treatment integrity there as far as uh, how well the teacher was able to to run the intervention? We did, and we actually calculated procedural fidelity three different ways in this study. Um, we've seen in previous good behavior game research, it can are calculated differently. And uh-huh. so it, it brought up some interesting questions because okay. one way... <laughs> is a maybe a little sidetrack here but as one way to calculate procedural fidelity is just total so you would take the number of tokens that were delivered or removed and divide that by the number of disruptions so ideally it would be a one-to-one ratio each time there was a disruption a token was delivered or removed but sometimes if multiple students were simultaneously engaged in disruption we would only add or remove one token. And so, for example, if there were two disruptions, like two students called out at the same time, the data collector would score both of those, but the researcher only removed one token. And that would look like procedural fidelity of 50%. Ah. So another way we calculated was using the proportional method. So we divided the session into 10 second intervals and then calculated it the same way. Number of tokens delivered or removed divided by the number of disruptions within that interval, and then calculated that across the session. So that was a little bit more generous because if there were no disruptions, right, and disruptions are low, uh, that will result in higher agreement. That makes sense. So out of those, uh, which one uh, scored the highest for you and, and, and where, where was the, the fidelity or treatment fidelity during the intervention? So the total was the lowest and proportional was a little higher because of the inflation of, you know, app intervals where there were no disruptions. And then we actually calculated fidelity one more way that I didn't get to yet. And we were lucky to have raw data streams where we could go back and uh, conduct this analysis. And we calculated the average number of disruptions per token delivery or removal. So in other words, how many disruptions occurred before a token was delivered or removed? And again, ideally, it's going to be close to a a one ratio, one disruption, one token added or removed. Um, And when the teacher implemented the game, we saw that ratio to be a little bit higher um, than when the experimenter implemented the game. And it actually, even when the experimenter implemented the game, it tended to be associated with levels of disruption. So the lower 
the number of disruptions per token delivery or removal, the lower the disruptions for that session. That makes sense. So it, it would be hard though, to be like implementing this and you know, four or five students are disrupting and making that judgment call immediately of like, how many tokens am I supposed to remove right now? Um, you know, it, I, I could definitely see that being, being difficult. Um, or like disruptions happening, uh, one right after the other. And, uh, but going back to, to kind of some of the bigger picture stuff here, what, uh, what results did we see? Um, were we able to see a, a significant difference between these two, uh, the, the efficiency or the effectiveness of these two interventions? Were we able to see a difference? Were they both effective or was one clearly more effective than the other? They were both effective. So we initially saw a, a little bit of differentiation, um, but they overall occurred at really low levels of disruptions in both game variations. That's great. That's awesome. And, but as far as preference goes, um, you, you touched on this before when the teacher was, uh, able to select which, um, which good behavior game to implement. Uh, the teacher chose the one where they remove, the tokens. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. And what about the students? Which one did they prefer? Uh, with the students, we simply asked them their preference rather than directly measuring the preference. And the majority of the students chose the stimulus removal variation as well. That's so interesting. Um, and, you know, with both being effective, um, I... I really like that this is giving teachers just some more options of what fits their ability and preferences and teaching style. I think this is very valuable. Do you think there were concerns with uh, the names of these interventions and if that kind of swayed the preference of the students or the teacher just based on one of them is like, uh, what what was the first one called? I'm trying to remember. <laughs> the worried warts game. <laughs> yes. Do you think do you think that the name worried warts versus uh, what was the other name? Happy camper. Yes. Yes. Do you think that just picking like establishing those names? Do you think that um, kind of swayed the preferences a little bit? It's definitely possible, and that is a major limitation of this study it's likely that students have encountered at least a happy face emoji before. And so they might have prior associations with positive stimuli and the word happy or even camping uh, yeah. compared to uh, potentially aversive stimuli of worried or wart, right? They're yeah. less desirable terms. Was that, was that a frowny face or was there not an image on that one, the worried warts? It was the emoji face that was sort of like blue on the top and then yellow on the bottom. Got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to describe it. I think I, I, think I know which like. one, but there's a lot of emojis. I might have yeah. to go back through and, and look and see which one it is. That's yeah. So, so that's definitely a concern. And, and the reason why we chose to have such different and salient stimuli was because in prior research, the 
experimenters had suggested that there was possible the students weren't differentiating which game was in effect. So for example, in uh, the earn contingency, so they compared the reinforcement version to the stimulus removal and they would say, be quiet or we're gonna lose a point when in fact they were only earning points in that condition or in the earn condition, be quiet, we're gonna lose a point. Um, when that wasn't the actual contingency that was in effect. Ah, yeah. It's it's very important that they discriminate which contingency they're in. And so, like, it, it makes sense to me making it as salient as possible. And it, it might just be something that to be considered in, you know, upcoming research that people might conduct. Speaking of which, what other uh, research is needed in this area? I know Good Behavior Game has been around for a while. Um, and, but... Yeah, I don't. I don't think we're ever going to say that there's a, we have enough research on a topic. Um, so, what are some areas within uh, this related field that uh, still need to be researched? So, I think one big area is just looking at how we can make this easier for teachers to use. The teacher in this study, she chose the stimulus removal condition, stating that she thought it was easier to take them away than to give them, um, whether that be the accessibility of the tokens or, you know, I'm not really sure what led her to that conclusion, but she still reported that it was difficult to implement. So maybe easier than the presentation version, but still was difficult, uh, which might have also led to some of the lapses in procedural fidelity. So continuing to look at how we can adapt this for individual teachers, that makes it easy, uh, doesn't detrimentally affect procedural integrity and thus the effectiveness of the intervention. And then also how we can specifically program for generalization and maintenance. A lot of teachers might be really willing and excited and they see the positive effects, but then after a while, well, can I stop doing this now? Um, yeah. And it'd be great if we can, you know, find a systematic way to be able to do that where we can remove some of the more effortful components and still maintain low levels of disruptions. Oh, that would be, that'd be amazing to be able to do that. That's, it's a much, it's always better to plan for the removal of a intervention than to just kind of get sloppy and let it fade out. Absolutely. Um, now, for the behavior analyst uh, that is listening in, or even a teacher that's listening in, uh, super excited to to maybe try out the good behavior game, either you know giving, uh, you know adding a stimulus or taking away the the stimulus or token. What recommendations do you have? What tips do you have for being able to implement this? So my first recommendation is to throw in, use that entire treatment package at the onset. There's some research where not all of the components are initially implemented and it doesn't work quite as well. So ensuring that we start with that full treatment package and then you can work to try to fade some of those components out. And the results of this study, as well as some previous research, suggest that the feedback component is really essential to low levels of disruption. So being as consistent as possible in responding to those rule violations. Good. So uh, 
it might help. Let's identify those or some of those components that may be involved. So you have the feedback that is is very important. Uh, The the token or the the you know the backup reinforcer that we're using. A um, yeah, the backup reinforcer, the ultimate reinforcer that um, you know the maybe they're earning a party. The winner gets a party or some other prize, whatever it is. What other Mm -hmm. components are there in the the good behavior game? So statement of the rules and the division of the class into teams. Got it. And then also the criterion to win. So what is that? Where's that bar? Yes. Awesome. Yeah. So starting out with all of those um, is, is crucial. What other recommendations do you have? Another recommendation I have is to, again, start by implementing it for short periods of time. So you want the students to be successful and to be frequently contacting those backup reinforcers uh, for when they, you know, engage in high levels of rule following behaviors. So even if you say, I want to conduct it during this two hour period in the morning, you can break that period up into multiple games instead of one game. So if students lose, that might motivate them to engage in rule-following behaviors in a subsequent game. Awesome. So shorter games, but more frequently, would be better than, you know, one long game for the entire day. Yes. When starting out. Awesome. Did you have any other recommendations on that? I have so many recommendations. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. Um, I, I think that monitoring the procedural fidelity is is also important, especially given the data we have in the studies showing that the more consistent, this is probably not surprising, right? The more consistent you are in delivering that feedback, the more effective the game is going to be. And then when you have that those data, it points you directly to what you need to do in teacher training uh, to improve the effectiveness of the game. Got it. And so how would, you know, that that might be possible if the teacher has access to a behavior analyst to come into the classroom and help out. How would a teacher just do that and monitor and make sure that they're doing everything correctly? Maybe what recommendations do you have for that teacher that doesn't have access to a behavior analyst but would love to implement something like this? So for the teacher, a type of self-monitoring checklist, I think would be a good way to start where you have the components listed and you sort of check off, okay, yep, I did this, I did this, I divided them into teams uh, is a good way to start. And as far as tracking disruptions, something like a clicker can be really easy and that also will show you the total scores. So you can clip that onto your uh, pants loop and you can even be walking around the classroom and clicking um, when you see rule violations is a way to potentially reduce some of that response effort. That's awesome. You, you are full of good recommendations. This has been like super valuable. Um, so, you know, this, this study, this discussion, it's been great to be able to learn how to manage the behavior of a group, um, even large groups. I think in this study, there were over 20 people right in the classroom. Um, and so thank you, Dr. Wisco, for being willing to come and, and join us and talk about all of this. Um, now, do you have, I, I know we talked a lot uh, during this recording already, but do you have 
anything else that you were hoping I would ask or thoughts that you had that I didn't give you the chance to share? Um, yeah. So one more thing is to consider how the game might impact the student's social interactions with each other. So with any type of group contingency, we talk about the potential positive social interactions and also potentially negative social interactions. So things like working together or blaming or tattling other team members. And we don't have a lot of research directly measuring these interactions during the good behavior game. There's a little bit, and in this study, we measured those and saw really low levels overall, but student prompts actually increased during the game. So students were prompting each other to engage in rule-following behaviors, which I thought was really neat and a positive effect of the game. Oh yeah, that's huge and, and super positive. And the opposite can be true, right? Like that, if there's, if the problem really only comes down to one or two kids, and they're going to disrupt, you know, maybe intentionally make their their team lose. Uh, that's going to really negatively impact their their relationship, their social interactions with their teammates in their class. Yeah, we call those the sabotagers. Um, yes, <laughs> I've I've seen a, a few of those in classrooms across the years. We didn't have any students who met that criteria in this study, but typically what we would do is put that student on their own team until they're able to uh, decrease disruptions and increase their rule following behaviors, and then we'll reintegrate them onto the team with their classmates. Oh, interesting. Um. And, you know, it would be really easy for them to just decide that they want to win if there's just one person. Um, right. <laughs> it puts more it puts more accountability on that individual student, for sure. That's a fantastic recommendation. I like that. Thank you. Um, did you have any other thoughts on that? No, I'll leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> but I love talking about the good behavior game. So if people ever have any questions or um, need access to some resources, I'd be happy to share. That's great. Thank you. Um, and, you know, thank you so much for being willing to come and chat. I think like it's good to, to have experts like you that are able to, to help us be able to, to make a difference. Have you ever seen this applied to um, like not a classroom, but like a... Um, I don't know, some other group like a, uh, I'm just trying to think of how, because I think we have a lot of behavior analysts who don't work in a classroom. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I don't work in a classroom and I've never been able to like find an opportunity to use the, the good behavior game. So have you ever seen this applied to other settings other than the classroom? So there's a variation of the good behavior game called the step it up game that focuses on increasing students physical activity during periods of like recess or PE class, which is a, a pretty cool variation of it. But it really is, you know, an example of an application of a group contingency and, and that can be applied in any context, whether that be a classroom, uh, a work setting, uh, you see these types of procedures used across the board. Yeah, I think group contingencies can be so powerful and some of these ways that they're packaged uh, just make it a lot easier for us to be able to use them rather than coming up with, with our own and finding the best way to do it. So um, yeah, thank you for, for being on the show with us. It's been great to have you here. 
Thanks for having me.